This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been doing therapy now for almost 25 years, and I decided last year that I wanted to extend the walls of my practice so that I could reach more people, maybe even people who didn't know a psychologist, had never been to therapy, might not even consider going into therapy. Perhaps you'd be interested in how a therapist talks and thinks about certain kinds of issues in our world. So if you are, I hope that you stay tuned in, because we're talking about something really important and something that's going on in our world right now. We're going to be talking about the allegations against Harvey Weinstein. What has been your reaction to what's been going on? If you've been sexually objectified or abused in your own lifetime, I am sure you have your own story. In fact, today I'm going to tell you one of my own and my own reaction to this kind of behavior. Then we'll move a little more into thinking about responses to danger. There are actually four. We always talk about fight or flight, but there are two more. And all of these are based on how you assess the situation and your history. But we'll talk more about that. We'll also talk about shaming yourself for not doing something different if you have been sexually harassed, objectified, or even abused. So many people have a lot of shame. I should have done that. I should have done this. But we'll go more into this in detail. And an email from a listener today, they're not always on the topic that I'm talking about, but this time it's a very similar topic. I got an email from someone who wanted to confront her sexual perpetrator, and the perpetrator is her brother-in-law. So she wanted my advice about that. Again, just a personal note, this is actually my second podcast of my second year. So thank you if you're a subscriber. That really means a lot. I'm getting more and more of those, which just thrills me. And thank you for tuning in. You know, I've never met Harvey Weinstein, nor am I likely to do so in this lifetime, at least. And if you haven't heard his name in the last week, you've been under the aforesaid rock. He's been allegedly accused by multiple women of sexual assault or harassment. Women like Angelina Jolie. However, most, if not all women, have met a Harvey Weinstein. We don't have to read about it in the papers to know that sexual objectification of women exists. So I thought I'd tell you a little about my own story. I was working at the Fairmont Hotel in Dallas in their elegant lobby bar, the Pyramid Lounge. This was 1984, and I was 29 years old. I was the lead vocalist for my own jazz group, and we played there six nights a week. I know it's a little strange to think of a psychologist as someone who was a jazz vocalist, but it did happen. Anyway, back to my story. One afternoon, I was called by a bigwig who ran the place that a very important man in the Fairmont world would be in town that night. I remember naively thinking, and and how does that affect me? But I smiled and said I'd enjoyed meeting him. When he arrived at the bar later that night, 
The man bought me a glass of wine and asked me to dance. He was fairly short, probably in his 60s. The guys in the band told me the next night that I looked like a sheep going to slaughter, but they didn't know what was wrong. This guy held me far too closely and whispered in my ear an invitation that made the back of my neck crawl. He was very physically strong, and I did my best to not react to what I could feel against my leg. I felt paralyzed. I didn't know what to say or do. I made some kind of response that I don't even remember and stated I I had to go back to work. He stared at me mockingly and returned to his table. That night, I left the hotel as quickly as I could when the gig was over, and darting quick looks over my shoulders, I got in my car. I felt really dirty, used. I was embarrassed that I hadn't said something more like Gloria Steinem might at the time, mad that I hadn't reacted like Sharon Glass on Cagney and Lacey, which was a program that I loved at the time. Why hadn't I been sure of myself or in his face? But I had not been. And I found out the next week that my contract with the Fairmont wasn't being renewed. In fact, a couple of months later, the soon-to-be infamous Jennifer Flowers took my place. I'm not making any insinuations about Jennifer Flowers. Some of you are probably too young to even know who she was. She was a woman who allegedly had an affair with Bill Clinton. Yet, looking back, it seems ironic. What happened to me in that moment has obviously not been forgotten. The sudden unmasking of, you think something is what it seems, and then it's very much not what it seems, jarred my sense of personal identity and even safety, and I've never forgotten it. I wasn't Margaret Robinson anymore, which was my name at the time. I was two breasts and a vagina and young. What if that man had offered me something I desperately wanted, that perhaps I'd worked hard for years to attain? What would I have been willing to say or do in that moment? Perhaps we all think we would, of course, stand up for ourselves. We as women or a man who's being sexually objectified wouldn't allow such demeaning behavior to occur. You know, that sounds real good, but it isn't always reality. I've listened for years as a therapist to people who reveal, you know, I always thought I knew what I would do if something like this happened. Now I realize I don't know at all. I'm the person who I used to judge. How did all the women that Harvey Weinstein allegedly assaulted react? Perhaps some of them responded by fighting or resisting, saying no. Angelina Jolie said she said no, and then stayed away from him. But she didn't tell. She didn't talk publicly. But perhaps many people actually freeze. And perhaps some acquiesced. What we need to remember is that there are four major ways humans react to danger, although most people only talk about the first two. Many of us have heard about fight or flight, right? Fighting is literally, we gear up for a battle in that moment, and we fight, we struggle, we confront. Flight is literally running away. Our personalities tend to form around these reactions to danger as well, If you're someone who fights, you probably confront a lot. If you're someone who withdraws or quote-unquote runs away, then that's probably your go-to response for any kind of conflict or stress. But there are two more reactions to danger that we find in all species, really. And these two occur 
when a more active stance isn't seen as possible. We freeze, literally we get scared stiff, or we fold, we collapse. So what determines what you do? Mainly your history, how much abuse or trauma you've had in your life. But remember, your reaction is based on how your brain assesses the situation, how you comprehend what's happening to you. I've had many victims of sexual abuse tell me that it never occurred to them that something was wrong when their father groomed them sexually and then began having sex with them. They simply believed that's what fathers did with their daughters. The revelation that that isn't what healthy fathers do came much, much later. If you have a history of abuse of any kind, it's going to change your reaction. When you're totally surprised or even shocked by a sexual approach, when you feel physically or emotionally overpowered, when fleeing or fighting doesn't seem possible, you can easily and in physically dangerous attacks wisely become still, invisible, frozen. I haven't always responded like I did on that dance floor. There have been other times that lurid, unwanted comments of what some man could do for me have been made, which I've either intentionally ignored or rebuked, depending on the circumstance. Cat calls from strangers have been very common and irritating, at least in my youth. I don't, I don't get any cat calls now, <laughs> which is a good thing. The divorce lawyer who had more in mind than a divorce was another. That one I staved off pretty forcefully. And even now, guys leave stupid Facebook messages that ridiculously infer that I'd want to get to know them. Really? I mean, really? I'm very lucky. I've never been sexually assaulted, and far too many women and men have. It varies by study, but most of the time, the studies indicate that anywhere between one in four or five women have been sexually assaulted, and one in eight men. And most often, those are people that you know or just at least half the time. I want to make something clear. This is not a man-bashing podcast. Just last weekend, we were having breakfast at a local diner, and I saw these men come in with Domestic Violence Awareness Week t-shirts on, and they had just run a 5K. So thank you to those men who stand with women and do things like that, or they overhear another guy sexualizing a female coworker, and they confront men who love their daughters well and empower them as people. But you may have heard men talk about the whole Harvey Weinstein allegations and make jokes at women's expense. You may have heard that this week. Those men are simply showing how insecure they truly are, that their worth relies on demeaning someone else, maybe even an entire gender. But I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking to the people who were victimized by sexual harassment or abuse, and they have frozen or folded. It's a very common reaction, and again, is often the most wise thing to do. It's not your fault that you didn't fight. It's not your fault that you didn't run away. It's not your fault that you didn't stop it. The shame belongs to your perpetrator, not you. Let go of it if you feel it. Get angry instead or at least have a more rational view 
of how you reacted. I often think of what a deer looks like when it's startled when I think of sexual abuse victims or sexual harassment victims. They get very still. They don't do anything. They're assessing the situation, assessing the danger. Then they run. But there's that moment that they're very still to determine just how much danger there is. So you want to place the shame on where it belongs, on the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. So today's email from a listener is about the very serious topic of confronting someone in your family who may have sexually abused you. Here's the email. Dr. Rutherford, I'm considering telling family members about my brother-in-law sexually molesting me when I was a child. It also happened to my younger sister. Some people in the family know, but not the sister who's married to the perpetrator. Someone told me that telling would free me, but there's also the fear of tearing up a family by telling. What do you think? This is obviously a very emotionally loaded kind of thing to bring into a family and one that I have helped certain families try to do. Years ago, I saw a patient, I'll call her Kathy, and Kathy wanted to confront her grandfather who had sexually abused her years before. I had not had a lot of training about this at the time. I was, In fact, I was still in graduate school. So I thought I did a pretty good job of talking with her about it the pros and cons, all of that kind of thing. But there was a piece I missed. And when Kathy came back, she had been re-victimized. So unfortunately, I learned at Kathy's response how to answer this question. Hi, first, I'm so sorry that you were hurt as a child, and I hope you've worked through that very life-changing experience and gotten support. I learned a long time ago that it's extremely important not to be re-victimized by a confrontation with a perpetrator. Your fear of tearing up your family may be based on a realization that your sister and brother-in-law, who was the abuser, may not be capable of having this very difficult discussion with you, might be defensive, call you a liar and your sister if she confronted with you, or simply ignore what you're saying. Certainly, it's never a victim's job to keep the secret. By talking with a therapist about it, perhaps friends or a partner, you can shed whatever sense of secrecy you wrongfully absorbed as a child. It's a difficult decision. Some people decide they're ready for whatever happens and they confront, hopefully with some guidance about how to do that. Others choose not to. I remember another woman who I saw many years ago now, too, and she said that she would cry every week in church. And I said, why? She said, because I'm sitting by my brother and he sexually molested me for years. She said, I'm not crying about the church service, although everybody thinks I am. I'm crying because I'm all balled up on the inside. He's never apologized, never even spoken of it. And she was someone who, although we talked about it several times, chose not to confront. The problem with that, of course, in families is that sometimes perpetrators continue the violence and you've got to worry about the children. But others, like that woman, choose not to confront. 
Now I go back to my response. My belief is that it can be empowering to know you're making a choice to confront or not to confront. It's your choice. It depends on many factors. How much are you being affected still by the abuse? Is there the potential of him or her hurting others? Are you getting triggered by being around your family or brother-in-law? It could be freeing, as your friend said. But my advice is simply to think about it carefully, talk about it with your sister, and try to make sure you don't get hurt again in the process. One more example of things getting complicated when you confront in a family. I've had a patient through the years who did just that. She confronted by writing a letter to her family, one of her family members who had sexually abused her. They listened, and they did nothing. He denied it, of course. This has been extremely painful for the patient, and in fact, many of her depressive symptoms get worse when she goes home, which she still does. But we've talked about it over and over. She's realized that most of her family does not have the capability of trying to wrap around such a difficult, conflictual situation. She does have one family member who believed her, who proactively checks on her. But she's continued her healing, although her family has remained mute. So it's a decision that has to be thought about very, very carefully. If you've been the victim of sexual assault, there are people you can talk to who will try to help. I have the link for the RAIN sexual assault hotline in the show notes. So please, if that's you, give them a call. You can reach out to me in lots of different ways. My website, where I blog weekly, is drmargaretrutherford.com, or you can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. That email is confidential. I'm the only one who sees it, and I will answer you. I would love it if you leave a rating or a review on iTunes. I'm trying to get the word out and grow an audience for self-work, and I'd love your help. I'd be very, very grateful. In fact, this happens to be my birthday week, <laughs> October the 21st. So if you want to give me a little birthday present, you can leave me a rating or a review, especially on iTunes, but you could leave it wherever you listen, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever. I'd really, really appreciate it. And of course, subscribe. That truly lets me know that you're looking forward to the next episode of Self Work. You can also subscribe to my website and get my weekly blogs as well as podcasts. Thank you for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work. <laughs>